We're in a new series in 1 Corinthians over the next few weeks. What happens when someone becomes a Christian? What does it mean for their day-to-day -day life? What does it mean for the future? Well, come along with us and see how Paul answers that question over the next few weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. We're back in 1 Corinthians this evening. And if you remember how this letter holds together, we are transitioning from the call, what happened when the gospel goes out, to now thinking about the wait. Let's just have a quick look back at this letter. It's been a year, you could say, since we last looked at it. Uh, previous chapters, where we discovered that God's word, as it is shared, it's not just the words, it's not just rhetoric. It is a call. It is a call to be something far bigger. A call to join the fellowship of the Son. And as this call goes out, it's building something. It's building God's temple. Our identity is transformed. We are no longer on our own, but we are part of something extraordinary. There you go, that's chapters one to four. Now, as we shift gears from the call, we find ourselves in the wait. Paul is going to talk about how we live as we wait from chapters five to 14. The waiting period between becoming a Christian and Jesus' return. I mean, that's significant, isn't it? It entails a, a, a call to live in a way that pleases God, a, a call to Holiness. In fact, throughout the Bible, when God calls, people respond. You think about the story of Exodus. God called his people out of Egypt and he gave them a purpose. Just like the Corinthians, we are in the waiting period between becoming Christians and Jesus' return. We're in a time that is calling for our holy living. See, our identity as God's temple informs our behaviour. It gives us 
a job to do. Well, tonight we're delving into an alarming situation in Corinth. And it helps us to think about this question. Does sin really matter in the church? Does sin in the church really matter? It's really important to clock uh, that flow we've just seen from the call to the wait as we go into these chapters, because this section is written in light of who we are. You'll see there's a distinction here between the church and the world. We're going to see that as we carry on going through. So then what is going on in Corinth? Well, it's shocking, isn't it? Uh, As we had it read, could you imagine this going on at Christchurch Hemel? Verse one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, that's a situation so disturbing that, did you notice, those outside of the church, the pagans, even they would not tolerate it. Uh, There's a man involved in a relationship that goes against not only the Old Testament law, but also the Roman law of the time. Does sin really matter in the church? I mean, I assume we're all nodding or in a British internal way anyway. Uh, but what, we, what about those times when we don't think that sin is that blatant? Are we tempted ever to see something going on and think, well, that's not my job? Or, is it really that bad? I assume we agree that the sin matters when things are as blatant as they are here in Corinth. But what about the rest of the time? See, here lies the matter in Corinth. And this is the challenge I think we, we actually all face. Just picture the church as a boat. I mean, the boat, it should be in water, but water should never flood the boat. The church should be in the world, but the world should never flood the church. Sin in the church is like water flooding a boat. It hinders the church's true purpose. When a boat is filled with water, it's done for. Likewise, when a church is filled with worldliness... It marks the end of the church. Well, let's see that in our text this evening, shall we? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Does sin in the church really matter? Hopefully you're expecting yes, but maybe not for the answer. Yes, because holiness matters for everyone. Holiness matters for everyone. And when I say everyone there, I really do mean everyone. We're going to see that as we go through this evening. Well, the first thing to see, the first part of the answer to see is this. Deal with sin because it saves individuals. Deal with sin because it saves individuals. You can see that in verses 1 to 5. And we've touched on verse 1 already. There's a case of sexual immorality in the church in Corinth. The man sleeping with his father's wife. But did you notice that the issue that Paul is addressing is not specifically that? The issue Paul is addressing is actually verse 2. You see what he says? And you are proud... Y'all are proud in American. Uh, Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Just notice with me for a moment. Throughout this passage, there are no words directed to the man. All of Paul's words are aimed at the church. And notice when I say they're aimed at the church, they are aimed at the whole church. Not just the pastors or the leaders. Paul won't take, well, it's not my job to deal with an answer the issue in verse 2 the corinthians are proud now that word is the word we saw back in chapter 4 it's the word puffed up 
The Corinthians are puffed up, they're arrogant. It's a word in context that refers to not actually caring about anyone around you. Puffing yourself up to the detriment of other people. I mean, that's a Corinthian issue, isn't it? Effectively, what the Corinthians here are saying is this. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, who cares? Is it really that bad? Why can't we just say, well, well, you do you, me do me? The issue is, though, that this is public. Did you notice here that the whole church knows? As this letter is being read out in Corinth, there are not going to be any surprised gasps as the letter is read. I mean, that's serious, isn't it? And this has been going on a long time. We're going to see later in the passage that Paul has written already about this issue to the church. Paul's concern here extends beyond the individual. It encompasses the entire fabric of the church. And the specific issue he's addressing is that the church is not addressing the issue. They're washing their hands of it. They're ignoring it. So what does Paul say they ought to be doing? Well, he says they ought to be judging this man. We're going to see judgment is the theme for these next three sections of the letter. Paul says they ought to be judging this man. That's what Paul has done, verse 3. That's what they should have done, verses 4 to 5. You see, a justice in the church, in this sense, is really important. Uh, what we call church discipline is really important. The local church should reflect the heavenly church. The church in Corinth, well, they're doing the opposite. They're reflecting the world. There is water coming into the boat. The church should deal with sin because it saves individuals. How so? Well, when the church is assembled, it's going to be a big thing among Corinthians. When the church is assembled, verse 4, they should do verse 5. They should hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul says his church should put the man out, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, we thought about the soul and the spirit. It's not a separate part of the body. It's part of the man. It's how we describe uh, the man in his entirety. But flesh here is his worldliness. Maybe that helps you make sense of this. See, this is a point we're going to touch on a few times as we go through this section of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the holiness, the set-apartness, the devotedness of the church is for a reason. And that reason is for salvation. Do you see, holiness saves individuals. Notice what this verse is saying. The church in Corinth should put this man out of their fellowship. They should be saying to this man, you are not one of us. You're persistent. Just notice it's persistent here. Your persistent behaviour does not match your claim. And in saying that, in demonstrating that, this man might change his mind. He might repent and be saved on the last day. See, church discipline is always about restoration. The church is meant to take this man and put him out into the realm of death, out into the realm where Satan rules, so that his flesh, that is, his worldliness, may be destroyed, but so that he, his spirit, may be saved. When the Bible talks about dealing with sin, it generally talks about two motivations. It talks about who you are, what is your identity, and it talks about where you're going, what is your destination. You see both of these in this passage this evening. The church should be saying to this man, this is not who you should be. And this affects where you're going. See, outside the assembly, there is no life. Do you remember earlier in 1 Corinthians? Those outside of this are perishing. It's death out there. 
So dealing with sin, as the Bible prescribes, is the loving thing to do. Now, I don't think anyone here is tempted to sleep with their stepmother. I mean, this is a drastic example. But the point is, it highlights for us the danger of sin in the church. The background to this section appears to be the sins of Gentiles. Just remember, we need to keep this in mind, Corinth is a Gentile place. It's a mixing pot of the world. A Gentile is someone who is not a Jew. Anyone who's not a Jew. And when the Bible describes Gentile sin, it talks about two things explicitly. Sexual immorality and idolatry. If you want to sum up the sins of the world out there, it's those two things. Sexual immorality and idolatry. Israel in the book of Leviticus were called to be separate set apart from the world around them by specifically not tolerating those two things. And if you have any idea where 1 Corinthians is going, those two things are going to be the things Paul talks about. So Paul here is highlighting the issue and showing us a bigger principle. The principle of the world out there infiltrating the church. This is worldliness. This is sin. It's nothing less than sexual immorality, but it does cover more than that. You can see that in the way Paul lists other things without batting an eyelid. So Paul is highlighting this issue here, showing it to be a bigger principle. And this isn't an isolated instance. This is a cautionary tale for all of us. And when faced with sin in our church, the temptation to say, it's not my issue, is real. But for the love of those involved, we must, we must confront it. See, dealing with sin is not just a matter of discipline. It is a compassionate effort to save individuals from the destructive grip of worldliness. You see, dealing with sin saves individuals. But dealing with sin is good for individuals and also good for the church involved. It is good for the body. That's our second point this evening. Deal with sin because it spreads through the body. We've been using uh, a boat in the sea. One small hole in the boat causes water to rush into the rest of the boat. Well, Paul has a more biblical picture for us here. And that is the picture of the Passover. Now, I don't think anyone here would have the natural choice uh, in a situation like this to suddenly start talking about the Exodus. But Paul is making a big point here. See, the Christian life is like the Exodus. I've said that already at the start. Uh, Like the Exodus, God called us out of the world. (coughs) And like the Exodus, God has called us for a purpose. God has called us to be fully devoted to him, to be set apart for him. And the call means separating from the world, just like Israel did from Egypt in the Exodus. And that's what the Passover is meant to remind. You see, verse 6, Paul can say, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. You can't have a little bit of yeast here, and not expect it to get through the whole dough. That is just what yeast does. Or similarly, uh, introducing one drop of poison into a vast reservoir, well, the whole thing becomes poisonous, doesn't it? That is what sin in the church is like. So verse 7, Paul says, get rid of that old yeast. Don't let the yeast leaven the dough. Be who you're called to be. Remember your identity. What is that identity? Well, verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has 
being sacrificed. Our identity is being defined by being saved by our own Passover, being saved by Christ. Our identity is that we are his. At the Exodus, Israel didn't have the time to put the yeast in the dough and wait for the bread to rise. Their exit, their exodus from Egypt was hard and fast. It was a radical departure, a clean break. Well, how much more so should ours be after the cross of Christ? Do you see why Paul is saying this? The Corinthians, they are arrogant, they are puffed up. They don't care because they don't think it affects them individually. But do you see what Paul is saying here? It's not my body, my choice. Instead, my body affects the body. Picture sitting in the church, that tiny leak in a boat or a drop of poison in a vast reservoir. I mean, the impact is swift and the consequences are devastating. This really matters. Sin in the church matters because it affects the whole church. We're not isolated. We're not a rock on our own. So it needs dealing with for the good of us all. So deal with sin because it spreads through the body. And finally, Paul's final answer to the question of sin in the church is that we should deal with sin because it matters for the world. Have a look at verses 9 to 13. See, this is where I said Paul had written to the church before. Uh, You can see that in verse 9. And here we can see the point. Paul isn't saying to not associate, associate with sexually immoral people because that would mean you would not associate with anyone in the world. Remember, that's the Bible's point of sexual immorality. It's what the world does. I mean, it's EastEnders, isn't it? It's what Gentiles do. And the church is in the world. But Paul would not be keen on monasteries. You see, Paul here isn't saying the church should be hiding away. When we build a church, when we have our own church building, we want it to have windows, don't we? Not just walls. The church isn't a fortress to isolate ourselves from the world. Instead, it's a mission outpost designed to bring salvation to the world. But verse 11, the issue here is associating with those who, look at the verse, verse 11, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It's those who claim to be Christians, yet are persistently living like the world. They're the ones the Bible calls us not to associate with. We should not allow them to have God's name on them. We should not allow them to say that they're part of Christ's body. I mean, that's strong, isn't it? The church is in the world, so don't stop associating with the world. But worldliness should not be in the church, so you must deal with sin within it. Like a boat should be in the water, but water should not be in the boat. The church should be in the world, but worldliness should not be in the church. Because the church is a public entity. People are looking in. We're going to see more of that as we carry on through this letter. But the world looks in and sees what the church does. If the church seems like the world, well, it's portraying the wrong idea, isn't it? It is not declaring the call that sets the church apart. We are called for a purpose. We're called for mission. We're called to be involved in saving the world. 
So I think this is the danger for us at Christchurch Hemel. You see, Paul says in verse 12, our job is to judge those inside the church, not to judge those outside. But it's so easy, isn't it, to be like the Corinthians here and, and wag our finger at the world out there and ignore or protect the stuff that's going on in here. You see, it should be the other way around. Judging the world is to condemn the world. It's to say that the world is already done for, it's gone. That can't be right, can it, when our mission is to save the world. And ignoring or protecting sin that is going on in the church is to make the church into the world, rather than bringing the world to the church. Paul underlines that, verse 13. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Just like Israel of old, we are to keep the church pure to expel the wicked person from among us. Why? Well, for the sake of the world. Deal with sin because it matters for the world. What should we do with this? Hopefully it's clear. But it's evident, isn't it, that over time, churches that mirror the world eventually become indistinguishable from the world. What sets a church apart from the world? A church is meant to be different, isn't it? It's meant to be set apart. A church should be in the world, yet radically distinct from the world. A church indifferent to sin loses its distinctiveness. It resembles an episode of EastEnders rather than a body that is set apart for a divine purpose. Taking sin seriously in the church is not an option. It's an imperative. It's going to lead to uncomfortable conversations to challenging questions, to necessary rebukes. However, if we were to think this evening, that's not my job, or we were to question the severity of the issue, we'd be taking the wrong response. It'd be like someone with a cancer diagnosis saying, I'm so thankful the NHS is so blocked up at the moment that my operation's been delayed for two years. I mean, no one says that, do they? We need to take sin seriously. Sexual immorality has no place in the church. Worldliness has no place in the church. What someone does with their body affects more than just their body. It affects the whole body. So for the sake of salvation, for the sake of everyone, individuals, this church, this world, we need to be on this. We need to pray that God would help us take sin seriously and cause us to be who he's called us to be. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Any questions can come to podcast email podcast at david-couch.com. I'll see you next week.